0: bottle in a brown sack Pistons bumpin' in a boy's Cadillac Cross the Mississippi Crazy on the pale moonlight Lord, I'm gonna be the devil to see my angel night Yeah Gotta go, can't stop smoking like a chimney top Hearts on fire, got me
1: Welcome to the Only One Shot Golf Podcast. I'm Jim Gallagher, Jr. Special thanks to Steve Azar for allowing us to use his music. And don't forget to subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts and get your copy of Only One Shot. That's by VJ Troilio, and it's available on Amazon. Today, I have the University of Georgia men's golf coach, Chris Hack, on the podcast. Chris has been at the helm at the University of Georgia since 1996. He's helped coach the team to two national championships, eight SEC championships, 66 tournament wins and the list goes on at least 10 tour players that have won on the tour multiple more tour players uh, on the pga tour georgia is on the map he has helped put that program back to to the top and made it one of the top programs in the country folks i got chris hack from the university of georgia on the podcast today chris appreciate you spending some time with us today
2: uh glad to be on jim thank you
1: well i enjoyed catching up with you at old waverly i don't get to, i didn't get to see you much lately of course you're busy leading those georgia bulldogs and i had girls that played on uh, in college so i never got to see the guys side of it but uh i want to get the listeners to get to know you a little bit better and where you kind of got started and everything but uh who got you started playing this great game and and who influenced you the most early on in your in your days You
2: know, it was, uh, my mom, uh, when I was about 11 years old, she would go out to play ladies day and I would just kind of tag along out there and kind of go out to the range or go out to the putting green and occasionally play with them. But I just, I kind of was one of those kids who loved it and would stay out there all day long, go to the pool for a while, then back out and play a little bit. But it was just one of those games that stuck with me. And, uh, you know, years later started playing in a few tournaments and, you know, when the tournament bug hits you, that's when you know you really love
1: it. Absolutely. Did you play other sports growing up as well?
2: I played, you
1: know, you know,
2: Little little League baseball and some basketball and so forth. But by the time I got to the ninth grade, golf was about all I, I was doing.
1: Was there something that kind of grabbed you, that kind of attracted you to golf? Was there some one day or something you can kind of remember that said, this is what I want to do and I enjoy doing this more than anything? Well, we played. A, I remember playing
2: uh, a little nine hole tournament at the club as our little club championship. And just at age 12, I think I finished second. And I got a trophy, you know, and I thought that was one of the coolest things in the world. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to win another one. So that's really what kind of piqued my interest and got me going.
1: Did you play a lot of junior tournaments as a kid as well?
2: I did. I. Uh, you know, got involved with the, Amer- the American Junior Golf Association uh, in 78 when it first started and played in their Tournament of Champions down at Inverary, Florida. Mm-hmm. And that was when I saw the likes of Willie Wood and Mark Brooks and Andrew McGee and-, and how good those guys were and realized that my game was not anywhere near there. So I started helping Mike Bentley uh, during the summers when he was running those American junior events and, and then eventually just kind of went to work with that group and tried to get that started.
1: You know, you mentioned that I played in that one, Tracy Phillips, I think now John Houston still teases me to this day. Tracy was about 14 or 15. He beat me about five and four. He shot about seven under that day. And I was like, God, he's not as big as my, you know, five-year-old nephew. Uh, but he just, like you said, there are so many great players we kind of grew up with. The AJGA was just starting. You became a tournament director in 81. What were your duties as a tournament director back then?
2: You know, it was basically just, you know, work with the the local club, the pro, you know, making sure that, uh, we had all the details organized for the golf course set up. And, and I was in charge of, you know, picking the fields, making sure we had the best players there and, and, uh. You know, it was it was probably one of the greatest jobs you could have, um, you know, as a 22, 23, 24-year-old kid is traveling around the country, going to some great places and meeting some unbelievable people in the golf business, um, and then, you know, putting on golf tournaments where you were literally seeing some of the best up-and-coming junior players, uh, you know, that, that were going to be the stars at the next level. and And, uh, and to watch those players – you know, win at the junior level, go on to college and become great college players, and and then uh, on to the pros. That was pretty pretty self-satisfying to watch, yourself included. And I'll never forget you being an, uh, a first-team All-American, you know, back in those days as well. Yeah, so, I was. I was. You're not, that, you're not that much younger than me. No,
1: I remember. I think I was on maybe the first one. I remember Mike called me and said, you made the All-American team. I said, do what now? And I was just <laughs> like, man, that's incredible. Because uh, I had the guys like Bob hey. Walcott and all those guys like you mentioned. There were so many good players uh, even back then. But it, AJGA just kept getting bigger and bigger. You got into the fundraising side of it. Uh, but you really saw that thing really take off and and, and really go into a whole new stratosphere. Uh, and it was the tour to be part of. And you were part of that and, and watched that. that. That has to be pretty satisfying when you look back and see where it's it was when it started.
2: Yeah, I mean, you look again. You go back to that very first All American team. You had guys like Willie Wood, yourself, um, Jody Mudd, I think was on that yep. team as well. Uh, Mark Kalkovecchia. Mm-hmm. So, so there were some. I mean, great players who got identified. And uh, and again, I think that's what that's what really struck me is that we were we were doing a good job of getting out there and really trying to find the kids in their local areas who were really excelling and trying to bring them all together. And, uh, and that's, you know, that's when you really started to see the growth of the organization take off is because every kid that came to those events loved playing against the other great players. And Mm -hmm. and again, that's, you know, friendships, you know, developed across the country. And next thing you know, from a recruiting standpoint, you know, a kid might go to this school because I met this kid at a junior tournament and we decided to go to school together. Or I know him already. Um, you know, that didn't exist prior to all that as much. It was more localized. And um, and so there's a lot of self-gratification in seeing that thing grow the way it did. And then as more and more guys started getting through the college years and getting on tour and you saw some success it just validated a lot of what the AJJ was doing, and gosh, you look at it today, it has just grown leaps and bounds, and there's so many good players that have uh, have you know migrated through that program. It's
1: unbelievable. Yeah, I couldn't even tell you what the number is now, but when you were involved, I think you were managing 22 people, $2.2 million budget, and 50-plus tournaments. I don't even know what it would be like now. Uh, budget-wise, the amount of tournaments, because they got so many different levels. But the University of Georgia came, calling. Uh, why did you decide to go into the coaching side of it and, 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 and follow up at such a great school as Georgia?
2: You know, I, was, I
1: grew up in Georgia, so I was
2: always a huge Georgia fan. Um, and what really piqued my interest is when I was with the AJJ, we started a tournament called the Cannon Cup, mm-hmm. which was 10 best boys and girls from the East against the 10 best boys and girls from the West in a writer type format and i was very fortunate to coach the west team and and do that for six years and my first four teams i had tiger on there i had guys like jason gore brian bateman chris riley um you know just some 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 great talented players um but i really enjoyed that team atmosphere i enjoyed Mm -hmm. every night getting together with them you know, in in the locker room or in the in the the conference rooms and talking about, you know, the next day and the pairings and who's going out and so forth. So when when Dick Kopas decided to retire, you know, a lot of my friends that I knew from the AJJ, whether it was Jack Larkin or Lewis Brown or Wright Waddell, Peter Persons, um, they all, you know, I got a, quite a few calls from those guys saying, "Man, you ought to." you ought to look at this because you'd be a natural at this. Had I not had the cannon cup experience, I might not have been as inclined to look at that, but because of that, I was really intrigued by it. And then when I came up to to Athens and met with uh, the great Vince Dooley and Mm -hmm. showed me around and kind of gave me an idea of what I could do. If I came here, I really, uh, I really embraced the fact that I, I thought I could come up here and, and uh, and make something out of this, uh, which it richly deserved, because there were so many good players that had come through here. And I wanted to create something that, that really showed that off.
1: You know, it's interesting, because in today's world, you wouldn't have got a shot like that first time getting into coaching. You'd have to go through the assistant ranks and everything. But uh, you hit on it a little bit, but being part of the AJGA, that had to help with your recruiting early on when you got to Georgia. You already had relationships with those kids when you were running the AJGA as well.
2: Well, it did. It did a little bit. I would say this is that my first recruiting class that I tried to get as soon as I became golf coach was Charlie Howell, who went to Oklahoma State; mm-hmm. Scott Valpito, who went to TCU; John Engler, who went to Clemson. So I kind of struck out immediately with <laughs> all three of those guys, and uh, so I didn't didn't have a whole lot of success. But I kind of reached down into my past bag of goodies, which was a, a young man, Ryuji Amata, who was mm. an AJGA player of the year two years earlier, who had not gone to college. And I I dug him out of my past and called him up to see if he'd be interested in going to school. And I asked him if he'd be interested in coming to Georgia to play golf. And he said, well, who's the coach? And I said, it's me. And he <laughs> goes, you're coaching at Georgia? And I said, yeah. And he goes, well, yeah, I'll come play for you. <laughs> so, yeah. So I was very fortunate in that. Uh, When I lost out on those guys, I was able to go get uh, Ryuji. And, of course, he came in and and immediately made an impact on this program uh, and led us to our first national championship in in 1999 at Hazeltine with a performance that was unbelievable in that final nine holes when he shot 31 Mm. on a very, very hard Hazeltine golf course.
1: Yeah, people don't realize how good he was. He was great.
2: Well, he was he was the number two ranked amateur behind Tiger Woods. So yeah, there you go. That tells you how good he was.
1: Absolutely. What were some of the things you were looking for, in kids, when you were recruiting back then, and maybe how that's changed even now, when you're looking for junior golfers? What are you looking for in them?
2: You know, it really hasn't changed a lot. I want you know I like to try to find guys who are who have good attitudes, and you know, being being a part of the AJJ, I saw a lot of really good kids, mm-hmm. but also saw a lot of kids that I wouldn't want anything to do with Mm -hmm. but i just wanted kids to come in that would embrace you know what university of georgia was all about i wanted to get kids who wanted to come in and have aspirations to play at the next level even though you know that's that's not always the possibility you wanted them to have those aspirations and uh you know one of the first things i did is i cut out all our guys joining fraternities because i wanted our golf program and our golf team to be the fraternity. Mm -hmm. And so from day one, it's been like that. And I really do think over 25 years, we've created one of the best golf fraternities you could ever want to be a part of. And so now all these guys come back, all the lettermen come back for a big reunion every couple of years. And it's, it's one of the more gratifying things that I, I see uh, when all these guys do come back and start telling stories. And of course I hear all the, the stories about how I how I was, and, you know, <laughs> how I made fun of them, or I did this or did that. But I don't remember any of those.
1: Of course not. It they never, all do. Yeah, it never happened. It's like Coach Malarkey. Those things never happened. He what he didn't know, he didn't need to know. But uh, that's right. You know, but no, it's it's changed so much. But you know, when you look at and you've seen the best. You mentioned Tiger Woods. What separates that elite golfer maybe from the rest of the the people? I mean, what separates that top golfer? or junior player from the rest is there anything specific you know my yeah my
2: opinion is is that uh, you have a lot of you have a lot of really good players out there and again you've played at the highest level you want at the highest level i mean you you know what i'm talking about you have a lot of really good players out there but what really separates uh, the good players from the really great players is that they just don't have any fear. They just don't, they're not afraid to make a mistake. They're not afraid to take a chance. And they just have an abundance of confidence, which just can will them to the winner's circle. And and so one of the things that I try to teach our guys when they come to Georgia is to never be afraid. You know, Don't ever be afraid of making a mistake. Don't ever be afraid of getting shot. Because the bottom line is, when the pressure is the greatest, when you're coming down that, the last couple of holes at the National Championship or the SEC Championship and you've got to hit a golf shot, um, you know, everybody's got nerves. Everybody's mm-hmm. a little bit jittery. Everybody's heart's pumping. But you've got to be able to, to you know, not be afraid to, to trust what you do on the range every day and just say, I'm going to trust what I'm doing. And if it works, it works. But you can't be afraid to do it. You just got to be able to do it. You mentioned when you might not, you know, and you might not hit a perfect shot. You might not hit a great shot. You might hit a bad shot,
1: but you better trust it and not be afraid to do it. Well, I agree. I've talked to so many kids. It's amazing, and you've been around them just listening to and I probably did it myself. I know Sissy's accused me of throwing away more money and getting mad at myself on the golf course than I could have probably sent four kids to school. Uh, but just, you know, <laughs> and I, now that I'm 60 years old, I look back and go, God, what an idiot. I mean, I wish I would have known, you know, back then what I know now and you, you, you mature as you go along, but you're right. I mean, you can't be afraid. You gotta, you, if you put the time in you practiced. I mean, all you could do is try to just execute the shot. I mean, otherwise, why are you playing? If you're scared, why are you playing? uh you know yeah exactly i I heard abraham answer say that he wanted to play tiger woods at the president's cup and i remember one of my colleagues saying well why would he i mean that the why would you want to play tiger woods i said well why are you hitting balls Uh, he he didn't say he was going to beat him you know he wasn't saying he was going to beat him. he wants the opportunity to see how good he is uh and that's that's why you you, like the sec is so competitive and, and really ncaa and that's why you do it that's why you want to go to these big top schools but y'all you mentioned winning the national championship uh that had to be a pretty cool i think that was a is that the first in school uh history winning the national championship the first one yes in
2: 1999 that was the first one in school history which with the, the players that they've had here over uh it's history it was kind of surprising but it just shows you how hard it is to win but that was our very first one in '99, and and again, team played so hard. I remember uh, we were we were paired with Oklahoma State in the final round, and I think we were three shots back going into the final day. And I think after two holes, we were two ahead. Um, that's how quickly mm. that golf course could change. And uh, and in fact, I think we were the only team that week didn't that didn't have a score in the '80s. I mean, it was really hard. Um, but it was, and the final group, the final group was Ryuji Amata, Charlie Howell, and Luke Dahl. Wow. And boy, again, great foreshadowing for three, uh, three terrific players right there.
1: Who else was on your team with Ruji?
2: I had a kid named Nick Cassini who, uh, played on the Walker Cup team. Uh, Michael Morrison, who was an All-American, um, Mark Northey, who was, who, it was an all-americans freshman year and a kid named jeremy parent so those four guys in fact all five of them are, are no longer playing
1: but they were pretty solid in college and you see that a lot i mean kids play great in college and and, and making the pj tour is tough but y'all win another national championship in 2001 that had to be just not mind-numbling but you, you get out there and you're kind of pinching yourself like we just won again you're building something special how did that change the recruiting? It was that kids are now contacting you more than you having to work as hard to contact them. Well,
2: I, I wouldn't necessarily say that, but we, we didn't win in
1: 2001. We won in
2: 2005. That's right.
1: You were 2001. But, you were number one.
2: That's right. But 2001 was the first time
1: in NCAA history that
2: all five guys made third-team All-American or higher. Wow. What's really what's really interesting about that is that team was really good. But the sixth guy on that team was an All-American the previous year, and that was Bubba Watson. Wow. So that's how good that team was. That, uh, I, think all, I think all five of them were ranked in the top 16. Um, but that was a really good team. But, again, just shows you uh, we got the national championship and didn't win, so how, how difficult it is. But in 2005, we went to Caves Valley, and we won up there. And what was really interesting about that event is that that, that team still has some tour players on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kevin Kisner, Brendan Todd, and Chris Kirk all played on that team. But the final round on a very difficult golf course um, under the biggest stage, all five guys shot 70 that day. Wow. And so, we, uh, so, we, so
1: for a coach...
2: That was uh, a very relaxing day for me that could have been a very
1: stressful day. Yeah, absolutely. I but, just uh, I just looked at my notes. It was 2001. You all are actually one number one in the nation. You were SEC Coach of the Year. You, you coached the Palmer Cup uh, in 2002. But, you know, you mentioned some of these guys. I mean, I go through the list. I'm going to miss somebody. There's 10 tour winners, I think, maybe more than that. You just had one this past year. Uh, uh, we uh, went in with Harris English making a comeback. You had Bubba Watson, Kisner, Brian Harmon, Harris English, Russell Henley, Chris Kirk, Brennan Todd, Keith Mitchell, and the list goes on and on. But you saw some guys struggle, Brennan Todd and, and Harris English, and then make comebacks. Uh, and you said you guys were kind of the model of having the alumni be involved and in coming back. But how rewarding is that for you as a coach to see these guys go on and have the success they've had?
2: No, it's It's, it's it's awesome. You know, never my wildest dreams that I think we'd have all these guys win so many tour events, you know, as they have and and playing as well as they have. I mean, God, this past weekend at the travelers, I think I had seven guys in the top 15 at one time. I Mm -hmm. mean, it was crazy how many, how many bulldogs were in there. Um, but, you know, they come back, and and they really do. They kind of help each other, and they, they kind of bond with each other. And, and I think when they're out on the road, you know, one of the things Davis Thompson told me that when he went to the to
1: the, uh, Walker tournament Cup. over in the,
2: – the, not the Walker Cup, the tournament when he turned pro. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the one that they had over at Congaree. The, yes,
1: uh, yes. I can't
2: remember the name of it over in South Carolina, but – you know he's over there and he's playing a practice round. You know with with Kevin Kisner and I think he played with Bubba and and and, and played with uh, a couple of the other guys, Seth Straka. You know so they they kind of look out for the younger guys and that's one of the things I always tell them. Hey, well, I got a new new guy coming out on tour. You know y'all look out for him and they go out of their way. You know because they've already met him in some capacity here, so it makes it real easy for them to kind of welcome him in and that's. That's one of the things I'm more proud of is the way that they treat each other and they, they kind of look out after each other because again, they are what I think is part of the one of the greatest fraternities you could ever be in.
1: Yeah, and you mentioned it; it's a fraternity, but you know you've got so many talented players coming in on your team with so many different egos and expectations and. In, in, you know, talent levels. How do you manage that? How do you balance that? Because that's a kind of a delicate, you know, you got one guy that thinks he should be number one. You got guys playing for the fifth spot who are roommates. How do you juggle all that and balance that?
2: Well, you know what, this
1: it's real simple and this is where I think um
2: this is where we have it easy as golf coaches. And that is that I I I take all their ego out of it and always tell them right up front is that I don't care what scholarship you're on. It doesn't matter what year you are. It doesn't matter. We're going to tee it up. We're going to play. So I'm not like Kirby Smart who has to figure out who my best QB is or who my best, you know, pulling guard is. Mm. I, I literally can tell these guys, we're going to tee it up three rounds. And you know what? Scores matter. And that's, what, that's, that's going to be the, the definition of going. And I try to tell these guys, they're going to be qualifying like this the rest of their lives whether it's trying to get to the Canadian Tour or the Corn Ferry Tour. And if you're on the Corn Ferry Tour, you're trying to finish in you know, that top 25 to get to the PGA Tour. And if you're on the PGA Tour, you're trying to get from 125 to 75 and from 75 to 50 and to the Tour Championship. And even if you make it to the Tour Championship one year, you're now trying to get to the Ryder Cup team or the President's Cup team. So you're always trying to get to that higher level. And the only thing that's going to do it and to find, you is play. You got to mm-hmm. tee it up and play. And so, if they don't, you know, they don't have any problem all year long, you know, going and giving their money and trying for one round at the U.S. Amateur or two rounds at the U.S. Open or, or you know, any of that kind of stuff. So, teeing it up with not, you know, ten guys trying to get five spots, the odds are pretty good. So right. you better, you better tee it up and go. And so, in all my twenty-five years, I've only had three players. That never missed a tournament due to all the qualifying. That was Russell Henley, Kevin Kisner, and Brian Harmon. Everybody else missed at some certain time, and I always remember Brendan Todd saying it best. He goes, "You know what? There's no better motivating factor than seeing that van pull out, Mm. and I'm not on it. I'm going to be out there on that range working a little harder the next go round."
1: So. You know what?
2: It's it's pretty easy to qualify. 69 beats 70 every time.
1: Yeah, and that's true. So how do you encourage a kid that maybe is, you know, should is good enough and is missing uh, tournaments, not qualified or or struggles in qualifiers, but he gets to the tournament and plays well? How do you kind of encourage them or how do you coach them around because my sister when she played at LSU couldn't qualify a lick, but when she got into tournaments, she played great. Some people have a problem with
2: that. Well, yeah, and, and again, I I think they've got to obviously they've got to change their mindset. They've somehow, some way, we've got to, we've got to get it to where they change that because again, at some point they've got to go to Q school. That's qualifying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, at some point they've got to they've got to be able to get over that hump. And I've got you know I've got guys who seems like they qualify for the US Amateur or the US Junior every year because they just they just know how to do it under. Pressure situations, and and that's something we just got to work on. And I I can promise you, I, I know one year, Chris Kirk, who who turned out to be one of the best players in our program, uh, his freshman year, he had a hard time doing that, getting in the lineup. And I finally I said, hey, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take you to the tournament, but not to play. Mm-hmm. I just want you to come watch. I want you to come see what we do, see what we see, watch what we watch. And so. He was at the uh, Jerry Pate tournament with us, and I finally said, hey, I'm going to just put you up here. Uh, I'm going to make you the designated coach, this, you know, today. And he stood on the par threes or the par fours and would tell these guys what everybody was hitting and what to do. And he would come back to the cart going, hey, don't listen to me. We're going, <laughs> listen. You, you are seeing exactly what we see, and you're seeing that guys make it way too hard on themselves. That You know, golf is not a game of perfect golf's a game of misses and this is why you got to manage your game better you know because he was missing qualifying by making really dumb mistakes coming down the stretch hitting a driver on a hole maybe he should hit a three wood or, or so forth and so it really opened his eyes by watching somebody else make those mistakes in a very critical situation and so that really helped him and and again after that he never missed another tournament and he ended up being the uh Ben Hogan Award winner is is uh, senior year, so sometimes you just got to find a different way to get through to them. Sometimes it works, sometimes it it doesn't, but but uh, you just got to keep trying.
1: Absolutely, and and you mentioned coaching. I, I've watched it, and I've been watching my girls. I've watched uh, some of the guys. I think there's a lot of over coaching. That's just my opinion as a player. Uh, you know, for me, it, it would be hard as if I was coaching. If you're sitting on the par three and you haven't seen the kid play for three or four holes, you don't know if they're fired up. They've made three birdies or bogeys. Uh, the best thing I always felt like if coach, if I asked the coach, hey, would they hit, that was fine. But how much do you get involved coaching on the golf course uh, uh, during a tournament?
2: Not, not
1: very much. I, as you've seen me probably at Old Waverly, yeah. I usually stay in the golf cart and I
2: don't – I don't do a lot. If I do happen to go, if I'm on a par three, because it's a, a windy day or something of that nature, either Jim Douglas and I might, might be on a par three. It's not to tell them what to hit. It's just to give them information. If they come up, they may want to know what the other guys hit, you know, or what, you know, and and where did they go. But when it comes to pulling the club, it's totally up to our players. And, and I'm not going to tell them, uh, tell them what to hit. So uh, I, I'm in agreement with you. I think sometimes the best coaching is to, is to wire your mouth shut.
1: Yeah, that's a good approach. I love that approach. And I do, I noticed, I, I knew you did that. I just wanted the folks at home to hear that's how you approach it. Cause I've seen them get down there like they're hitting the shot. I go, what are you doing? I mean, the kid's confused. Uh, and it's just like, this is why you train. This is why you practice and you put them out there. Now it may be one thing if they call you over, But they've got to kind of figure it out themselves. Uh, Otherwise, there's a crutch. I did notice maybe it's more maybe on the the women's side. A lot of the international players come from kind of the team, uh, like the Team Sweden or whatever, and they're used to having more coaching on the golf course. I don't know if it's prevalent as much in the men's, but I know it sure is on the women's. But, you know, once you get out there and you're by yourself – just they got to learn sometime they got to make the mistake and and i like that approach that you just don't sit there and overcoach because i think you get to seeing it plus it slows down play and now we're on tv uh more and more uh the match plays come in you know you won two national championships with with just middle play how has the match play format changed the way you coach
2: well i it's 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 more in the preparation i guess it doesn't really change the way i coach okay. it just changed the way we prepare and, you know, match play is a different animal. It's, it's a mindset that's very different. And a lot of these kids, especially the American kids, don't play a lot of match play. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, you know, we try to maybe, you know, do a, a few matches internally to try to get them used to it. I know they, you know, do it at the U.S. Amateur or maybe the Western Am, but not everybody gets to do that. So, you know, the SEC is going to actually have a fall match play championship this this fall in Birmingham is mm-hmm. going to be the SEC match play hosted by Jerry Pate. Yep. And it's going to be at Shoal Creek, which I'm really looking forward to. Um, but it's going to give all our kids in the SEC a chance to play a little bit more match play because it, it's a different mindset that, that you've got to do it a few times. Um, and I think, I, again, I think it's one of the reasons why the Europeans are so good in the Ryder Cup is because I think they're a little bit more used to some of those formats because we don't, we didn't do a whole lot of that growing up. I didn't, anyway. You might have. Well, but, especially the um, foursomes.
1: Four balls, one thing because you yeah. do that at the club. But the foursomes, all the alternate shots, a completely different animal. That's that's when there's really some heat on you. Oh yeah, yeah.
2: But uh, but you know, so we we
1: try to try to teach them as much as we can
2: about the the nuances of match play, and just and just hope by the time uh, we get into that situation, they're a little bit better prepared for it. But but. You know, it's like anything else. If, if, if I'm out there and a kid calls me over and he asks me my opinion, the first thing I'm going to ask him is what does he think? Mm-hmm. Because generally it doesn't really matter what I think. It's really what he thinks. True. And if I can just, just kind of give him a little confidence that he's thinking the right way, he's probably got a better chance of hitting a decent shot.
1: Well, anytime I caddy for the kids, that's the first thing I said. What are you thinking? Because I didn't want to confuse him. And I think the best thing is you commit whether you're right or wrong. And when you are giving advice, it's got to be, you know, 100% in, uh, right or wrong. I've always told my caddies that. I mean, if you made a mistake, you made a mistake. But just be convicted because the last thing I needed is someone giving me advice that was wishy-washy. I felt like that really got us in trouble. But tell the folks that are listening a little bit about your facilities and the golf course there at the University of Georgia Uh, and I know you've redone it. It's a beautiful facility, but tell us a little bit about that and uh, maybe how they can get in contact with you and and come visit or uh, get you to kind of watch them play some. Yeah, we we just spent a couple million dollars
2: redoing our golf clubhouse, and we did a great job of um, being able to display the history of our program. So we've got replica trophies in here of the Walker Cup and the U.S. Amateur and the Women's U.S. Amateur, but we also have a very unique trophy and that Bubba actually loaned us one of his two
1: Mm. that we
2: have on display here as well so that's that's very cool and um we built a nice you know big locker room that has a bit of a sea island feel to it when you come into it and it's it's uh it's a nice place for these guys to come in and relax a little bit, but we're actually in the process of redoing our entire practice area down here. We're digging it all up and redoing the greens and, and putting in a few more shots that maybe we didn't have before. Um, And the golf course is still just a a really good, hard golf course. So the guys uh, enjoy playing, but um, you know, right now with, with us being able to get out and recruit again, we're just, we're trying to make it out to, as many of the big junior tournaments we can and, and see some new young up and coming players. And, uh, right now we're, we're already done with our 22 and 23 class. We're, we're actually looking at the 2024s, and beyond at this
1: point how has that the what have been the challenges the last year or so i mean because a lot of kids you not necessarily signed coming in this fall but the following fall really haven't got to have any face-to-face with you and really got to kind of know you this is for all coaches this isn't just you chris hack this is for everybody recruiting kids that maybe you don't even get to know because of, of covid you haven't been out to have the face-to-face what are the what have those challenges been like
2: well we had to do a much more thorough job of trying to get to know the kids through telephone, you know, mm-hmm. or, or zoom or, or uh, FaceTime. But we did a lot more due diligence and kind of looking into the backgrounds of the players, um, you know, c- talking to people uh, that we knew that that knew them or knew the family getting a good feel for them. And, and uh, what we found is that we actually had a little bit more, probably a bit, a little bit more feel for who they were as a person uh, than they were as a golfer. And we just had to really rely on looking at tournament results to figure out if they were really any good. Um, but the, I think that that actually turned out to be pretty good for us because, you know, results don't lie either. I mean, mm-hmm. you can look at, at some of these really good tournaments, and if a guy's winning and putting up good numbers, don't uh, ain't a whole lot else you need to know other than to see his golf swing. And if his golf swing – uh, is it, pretty solid, you know. Heck, even in this day and age, it doesn't matter. Heck, I'd take Jim Furyk any day now. Yeah, you know, uh, with, with with his golf swing,
1: absolutely, because um, it works.
2: And um, and I think that's the other thing too. I think we 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 sometimes get so stuck on golf swings that you know what? I don't I don't care about golf swings. I like guys who can play. I like players. I like guys who who have a knack for knowing that's how to get the ball in the hole. You know, not that, man, I hit that great, even though it went 20 yards over the green. I, I really hit it solid. Who cares? It's over the green. You know, I want guys who can play. I like guys who, who have a feel for it being still a game, not a swinger, a swinging game.
1: Yeah, because I think a lot of these kids, and you mentioned facilities, they're all visiting these schools with beautiful multi-million dollar facilities, and they all have swing instructors. They all got. You know, shrinks or whatever you want to call them, psychologists coming in there, and that's always the tricky part. If the coach is an instructor type coach, Uh, and you do, you want kids that can play. I think, I think the the challenge is that these kids are away from home for the first time, and they're on their own. So yeah, and
2: you're right. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right. There's great facilities, especially in the SEC. Your old school, Tennessee, man, they they've got a beautiful place up there now. And you know, that was the first time I'd ever been at Old Waverly, and man, what a what a great golf course and set up they've got down there. And, but everybody's everybody around our conference and in the Southeast is doing that. But, but, but you're right. I mean, it's, it's just like any other sport um, it's played at a high level and all these, all these schools are committed to making it the best.
1: Well, it's great to have the athletic directors behind you, but also when that happens, they put a lot more pressure to succeed. Uh, and I think that's what you're seeing in coaching of course. You've been doing it a long time. You've had success, but there's pressure now for not only you and the players, you've got these beautiful facilities. They put the money up. Now you've got to go out and perform. And that's some of the pressures a lot of coaches have to deal with. I think.
2: Yeah, there's no doubt that you see a lot more changes a little quicker than normal, uh, in our business, but, but you're right. I've been very fortunate in that I've been at a school where the, uh, the eighties have, have been very good to me. And, uh, Hopefully they'll keep me around for another uh five to eight to ten years i I've got no I've got no desires to retire anytime soon. I've got five daughters and uh, only one of them's married so I gotta get the other four married off before I can retire
1: Trust me save your money (laughs) i got three daughters (laughs) trust me you feel my pain i feel your pain you're (laughs) preaching to the choir no question about it but you've been there 26 years two national championships eight sec championships 66 tournament wins 28 players with medals i can go on and on and on you've done a great job there i like to end my podcast whether in life or golf you've got a you may have only one shot and you got to make it count. You've made it count at the University of Georgia. And Chris, it's been uh, great catching up with you. I was glad I got to see you at Old Waverly and hope to see you again out there on the road. Appreciate you spending some time with me today.
2: Jim, I appreciate it. And as, as I would tell you at any time, you married one of the sweetest girls that I'll ever remember from the AJJ and
1: Sissy Meeks. And you give that
2: girl a hug every chance you get.
1: I am a blessed man. And I, uh, I, I know that and I hear that from everybody, but there's no doubt. She's one of the best. And, you know, behind every person, you got to have a wife like that. And she's the reason I was successful on the tour. She convinced me to how good I was, and she's done it with my kids. And it's uh, I am a blessed man, and we both are. But appreciate it, and good luck to you. And can't wait to follow you this fall. Sounds
2: great. Thank you, Jim.
0: car in 8 a.m. traffic bumper to bumper nobody laughing dead cell phone somebody throw me a bone is it just me am i all alone now i'm the waitress in la way past the prime shoulder to shoulder half of my line hey sugar can i get some for my coffee am i the only one that's crowded Here you go again, you're closing in, you keep coming, I keep running, everywhere I turn, I'm knocking into something, so I moved out to the country, but the city keeps moving in, yeah, I'm crowded.